Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where you are part owner. Member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by Lee Pomeroy. Good morning. Joining us now we have an author from Canada. He's a contributing editor and book author. He's best known for co-authoring a best-selling book called The 100-Mile Diet, A Year of Local Eating, which encourages readers to focus on local eating as a way to address current environmental and economic issues. And just recently, he published The Day the World Stops Shopping, How Ending Consumerism Gives Us a Better Life and a Greener World. But basically, this book says, we can't stop shopping, and yet we must. This is the consumer dilemma. Good morning, Mr. McKinnon. How are you today? I'm really well, thanks. Happy so, to be here. So this book, the title caught my attention, of course, The Day the World Stopped Shopping, and I thought, what in the world does he mean by that? What was the premise for this book? Yeah, I mean, that, that's really the dilemma I wanted to explore, was this idea that you know, the planet really seems to need us to stop shopping, the economy seems to need us to keep shopping, and the only way I could think of to kind of see beyond that dilemma was to run a, a thought experiment. And that thought experiment was to basically radically slow down our consumption on the page, on the written page, and play out what might happen. You've done some extensive research, and I'd like you to, to tell, talk about some of those numbers and statistics about how much in America that we're consuming compared with other countries elsewhere. Sure. I mean, maybe the first thing I'd want to say is that uh, consumption now seems to be the major driver of environmental issues around the world. But of course, consumption is not, it's not spread evenly around the world either. So you have a nation like the United States, where if every person on earth consumed at the same rate as the average American, then we would need five planet Earth's worth of resources to sustain that lifestyle for everyone. Uh, and of course, you have other countries where that figure is much, much lower. In some countries, we could, if we all lived like the average person in Afghanistan, for example, we could live on an Earth half this size and 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 sustain everyone at that at that lifestyle level. That might not be desirable, but there's obviously a real problem with sustainable consumption in the wealthier countries of the world. As I was reading that, I was surprised that the United States wasn't the first in that. I figured we were among the highest consumers, but we weren't. And talk about who, who was and maybe why that is. It surprised me a little bit. Well, Americans are definitely among the highest consumers. And if you combine American consumption with the size of the population, then the consumption impact of the United States is still, it's still the greatest consuming country in the world. But yeah, there are there are uh, some wealthy nations in uh, in Europe. I believe the Netherlands is one of them. And some of the Gulf states, the, the real petro economy states in the Middle East, where the average person is consuming uh, even more than Americans are. 
When you're talking consuming, what what is the stuff we're consuming that's extra compared with the others? I know you visited a number of, of other countries and gave some examples about how they lived real basic. And I don't think any of us in the U.S. probably could even imagine that. One of the countries I visit, I mean, certainly some countries people are consuming at a at a, at a really problematic level. I mean, they're, they're not even meeting their basic needs. And that's certainly not what I'm talking about when I talk about reducing consumption. I'm talking about re- reducing consumption to a to a sustainable level. I, one of the countries I visited was Ecuador, which is in a, a pretty small nation in South America. And it has an interesting combination of having a sustainable level of consumption, but also is rated a highly developed nation by the United Nations. So that means that it's, you know, it's a country where most people are not only meeting their basic needs, but, you know, they have pretty good public services and things like that. And yet they're consuming dramatically less than we are in the wealthiest countries. So what that looks like is actually probably not that different than America for many people in the 1950s or 1960s. It's just consuming a, you know, a whole lot less of most things. Most Ecuadorians, for example, or many Ecuadorians would never have taken a, a, a flight on an airplane. And while that's become almost a commonplace thing for many Americans. So describe what does that look like, the 1950s? I mean, I wasn't even born then. Really would just mean that we would we would do a little less of everything. We'd we'd buy fewer goods. We'd make use of fewer services. We would travel less. We would keep the things that we purchased for a longer period of time before we would turn them over. You know, we've really dramatically increased, for example, the the amount of clothing that we buy just since the turn of this millennium. Tremendous increase in the in the wealthy world in the number of garments. And yet you know, has that really improved our quality of life to be consuming, say, 60% more garments than we did 20 years ago? I think that's the question that, you know, I'm, I'm hoping people will think about. When we look, uh, last year is when you wrote this book in 2020, when the global pandemic was occurring. I saw a description that said that allowed you to examine in real time the effects that changes in consumer spending could have. So talk a little bit about what you saw during that time that made you realize, like, aha, this is something that would make a real difference. Sure. I mean, one, one really clear example was the effect on the environment. So we saw the consumer economy really slow down at the outset of the pandemic. And we saw the sharpest drop in carbon emissions in recorded history. Uh, So, I mean, it's that tightly tied. I mean, if we reduce consumer spending, we reduce carbon emissions immediately. And that's something we we have not been able to accomplish at a global scale through green technology and renewable energy up to this point. So, you know what we what we couldn't do with you know decades of effort in technology we accomplished almost overnight with the pandemic and of course people will remember you know the blue skies as pollution cleared the fact that that a lot of wildlife retook areas that they had been pushed out of by heavy human uses like mass tourism so you really saw this rebounding of the natural world but we saw it in ourselves as well we saw how quickly people's values could shift from materialist type values, a, you know, a focus on possessions and income and social status, and towards more inherently satisfying values like engaging with issues bigger than themselves or deepening their relationships with 
people they care about. In the book, you cite a goal, and you call it a humble goal, to reduce consumption by 5% across the rich world. What does that look like, and what kind of difference could that make? That would look like, I mean, consumption is very personal, so it's really difficult to say, well, everyone would reduce in this way or that way. But if we were able to you know, restructure the system in such a way that we were consuming just that 5% less. I mean, that 5% less only rolls us back just a few years in terms of consumer spending. So it, it shouldn't feel like going back to the Stone Age by any stretch, and yet it would have enormous impacts. It would potentially have impacts on the economy if we weren't careful about how we manage this. It, it would advance the fight against climate change really dramatically. I think it would start to make a greater opportunity for the natural world to rebound in a bunch of different ways. It would give us a little more space in our lives to um, invest in human relationships and less in, in our relationship with things. So if there was a day, let's say, a day that everybody stopped shopping, so one pick one day, any day, it was like a holiday, don't shop today, could that one day make any noticeable difference? You mean just one single day? Yep, one single day. Everybody in the world didn't consume anything. Or it probably wouldn't make a difference because uh, we would, you know, we might very well just do that day's worth of shopping the next day. They certainly saw that back when we used to have Sunday Sabbaths. People were able to consume just as much as they would have, but on the other six days. So you know that alone wouldn't do it. But there are lots of concrete steps that we can take that could move us towards a, a lower consuming society, for example, by by reversing the trend towards more disposable products and shifting instead towards more durable ones again. Well, that's one thing you talked about in your book, how back in the day, and I can think back when we were on the farm too, when you bought something, it lasted forever. I mean, I'm still using some of my dad's tools and things from years and years ago versus now you get something at a big box store and it's almost like you buy it knowing it's going to be a one-time use. How do we change that mindset, though? Because, I mean, it, it sounds like it'd be a good idea, but people want cheap, cheap, cheap. They do, and it's really it's really challenging to change that mindset, I think. But steps that, the kinds of steps we might take are, for example, mandating lifespan labeling on products, or as uh, President Biden has recently begun to, to speak of, mandating that products be repairable uh, again so that we're not simply throwing things out you know whenever the least little uh, glitch occurs with them so though those are the kinds of steps we could take we could also build the the social and environmental costs of the manufacture of products into the price of products so that we would be more likely to buy fewer of them rather than constantly be paying that higher cost for you know yet another t-shirt or yet another disposable good of one kind or another. I can't tell you how many t-shirts I've got. You know, you go anywhere and there's free t-shirts for this and that, and I've got drawers and drawers full of them. And I think people are just accustomed to that. So, I mean, like I said, I think it's a great idea, but how would we get this to happen? How would we implement something like this? Well, I mean, like I say, you can take those sorts of concrete steps, but there is also this, there is the consumer mentality and we need yeah. to start talking about it exactly as you said you know i have an example in the book where i'm talking to an executive at levi's and he points out the fact that you know you could reduce people's clothing consumption by 50% and 
they wouldn't even notice because we are, you know, we are getting, we're buying clothes that we never wear. We're getting clothes, as you said, at events and things like this and, you know, completely throw away pieces of clothing. We could reduce our clothing purchasing just in half and it wouldn't, it wouldn't even affect our wardrobe in terms of what, you know, what we actually use and wear in our, from our closets. So that mentality is something certainly we need to start talking about in the same way that a few years ago, you know, we weren't thinking too much about, well, what green should our light bulbs be or what kind of food should I eat in order to, to be a responsible citizen in terms of the climate. We now need to bring into the, the discussion the idea of actually reducing the number of goods and services and experiences that we, um, that we engage with and trying instead to aim towards having fewer but better goods, services, and experiences. It's just a public conversation we need to start having because we've been ignoring this issue for much too long. Well, you wrote the book about the 100-mile diet, a year of local eating that encourages readers to focus on local eating as a way to address current environmental and economic issues. And it seems like that movement has taken off a little bit, that more people are, are considering that. There's more farmers markets and things like that. So Maybe that's, like you said, the kind of thing where it has to catch on eventually in order to, to happen. Yeah, and I think it's a good analogy because I think the reason that local eating became popular so quickly is because it came with a bunch of good things, right? You got good quality food. You had a, you know, a better relationship with the people who produced your food. It connected you to the landscape that you live in and the things that it can produce. So people really found that satisfying. And I think the same can be true of reducing consumption, we tend to think of it as as taking things away from our lives, but we can also think of it as adding to our lives, for example, by giving us more free time. If we, uh, if we dedicate ourselves less to uh, earning money and spending money, then it gives us that, that space that so many people feel they are lacking in their lives to, to, di- to direct to other values and to really invest in the things that are truly and deeply satisfying. When you look back to do the research on this book, was there a time when something clicked that made all of a sudden that we were this huge consumer society? Was it the start of the industrial age or was there some place that you saw in history, the timeline that seemed like it took off? I think the the really sharp takeoff occurs right after World War II. And I think it happens for a couple of reasons. One is that there were really important technological innovations that emerged out of the the war period that made it possible for us to produce an enormous number of really inexpensive goods. And the other thing is that people had gone through a long period of austerity between the depression and the wars. It had been a long time since people had felt like they could really, really enjoy consumer life. So I think those two things combined to really set us off on a path that we didn't we didn't look to the end of and the, you know the, the only real problem with it of course is that it's really unsustainable i mean we're just consuming the world's resources at much too great a rate and and polluting and damaging the climate as we do so so we just weren't thinking about that at the end of world war 2 and you know now it's time to really confront the um, the consequences of that consumer trajectory that we that we ended up on. Well, I look back and I think about the depression when my parents lived through that age and talked about how I mean they basically didn't have a lot of things they were rationing for everything from fuel to sugar to you name it and that kind of thing. 
And I know that gave my mom a mentality of she wanted to have enough so she would never run out again. So I remember cleaning out her cupboard one time, finding like 18 cans of tuna, and we were, you know, basically because they were on sale or something. Do you think that that had a big part of it, too, with uh, maybe part of the, seems like a lot of consumers are, are hoarders, too? Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. It's uh, one of the things that drives consumption is a sense that you are not materially secure, you know, that you don't have the things that you need. The problem with the culture today is that you know, we're looking at, celebrities and saying well we don't we don't have all the things they have and it, and it gives us this sense that you know we're not materially keeping up that's part of what what drives us to consume and also this sense that we don't have a dignified place in society unless we have all this stuff that that other people have so equality and you know the rich poor gap is also a big part of this in terms of trying to address and reduce consumption we see that in countries where the the wealth gap is not as wide as it is in the United States, uh, people do tend to consume less. Well, how was Canada fall in all this? You know, we mentioned the United States, or is that considered part of the America that you were looking at as a whole? I mean, Canada is Canada is distinctly different. It does have a, um, a smaller rich poor gap than the United States, and consumption here I think does have a different tone. But Canadians are. You know, they're very big consumers as well. And most of the wealthy world is. I mean, even even the most equal of wealthy nations like those in you know, the Nordic nations in Europe, you know, there's less pressure, social pressure to consume, but they're still consuming at an unsustainable rate. You need know, to talk about the sustainability. For some reason, I think we've just gotten used to what we think is sustainability for us and not considering that really we don't need all the gadgets and things we have and we just think that that's what we need because we've been conditioned. Yeah, and this this is this really gets at, you know, kind of the core point that I'm trying to make with this book is that you know, we we've increased consumption by 25% in just just since consumer spending has increased by 25% just in this new millennium. Are we 25% happier? you know, over these last 20 years? Do we have 25% more well-being? I mean, I certainly don't think we do. And and that's what the evidence points towards as well, which is that at this point, once you've kind of met your material needs and, and some add-ons, some entertainments, some leisure, you don't really add much to your quality of life by heaping on more consumption. So we've become very, you know, very bad at translating a rate, our rate of consumption into increases in quality of life. And yet it's coming at a tremendous cost to to the environment and, and increasingly, I mean, disastrously so, as we can see. You know, I'm glad you brought up the point about emotionally how that's impacting us because a lot of times it's the attitude of keeping up with the Joneses or we're feeling bad about ourselves because we can't keep up. And that seems to be really putting a lot of pressure on people is there something you could say to people to make them? I I, I look sometimes and think, well, the media kind of does that because you see what everybody else has versus back in my parents' time. They didn't have TV. They just had radio and that sort of thing. So sometimes it's because we keep seeing maybe what's unrealistic on TV. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a quick example from the pandemic, which was that right away when the, when the lockdowns occurred, you had for example, uh, you know, I recall a billionaire who who posted an image of himself quarantining in quotes 
on his uh, on his enormous yacht. Uh, I think it was in the Caribbean. He was shamed off of off of the internet for that image, and yet, just I mean, if the, if he had posted that photo prior to the pandemic, um, that would have been totally fine. I mean, that was the bread and butter of social media platforms like Instagram is showing off your stuff. So, I mean, one thing that might start to happen if we do open up a conversation about consumption is that uh, people won't feel as comfortable lording over their powers to consume uh, over other people. And we might start to see a kind of rebalancing of what's considered to be an acceptable level of consumption in society. So we're going back to shaming. You mentioned that. It made me think, was it, <laughs> was it Japan, I think, now is shaming people for not getting vaccinated or something and trying to do that reverse psychology and making you feel bad? And, and it almost seems like that's kind of what you're saying here. Well, in a, in a sense, I am, because I, I mean, it's more, I would say that it's more turning turning the current circumstances around, because as you said, a lot of us feel bad about what we have or feel like we're not keeping up or feeling like we, our position in society isn't as important, I suppose, as other people who have more things and bigger houses and take more trips and all of these sorts of things. So in a sense, we're being shamed. You know, Most of us are being shamed into consuming to maintain a sense of, of social dignity in society. And, and maybe it's time to turn that around. There's certainly been long periods in history, including American history, where the wealthy were much more restrained in terms of their purchasing and especially in terms of how they presented their wealth to the public. And maybe we do need to get back to that as one of the one of the ways that we can help encourage a lower consuming society. You cited a study in the books about, you mentioned earlier about the, the degree of happiness the more you have, and then there was some correlation between how much happiness that you have. And at some point, you said there's just a, at a point where you get where you're happy and you don't get any more happy beyond a certain point. Could you talk a little bit about that study? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not just one study. There's a there's plenty of uh, research that's gone into it. And, and it makes it pretty clear that if you pursue materialist values, and by that, I mean values that are really focused on possessions and income and status that can help lift you up if you're in poverty and uh, struggling with your basic needs and you finally start to you know to make an income and and have some things and have some um, freedom in terms of how, how you use your leisure time that that can make you happy happier but it doesn't ultimately do so as you add more and more and more of those things so you can be making more money at a certain point. It's not adding a lot to your quality of life. Adding more possessions at a certain point. It's not adding almost anything to your quality of life. And in fact, some people start to feel burdened, as we've seen from the decluttering trend. People start to feel psychologically burdened by how much stuff they have. So yeah, this kind of goes back to this point I was making earlier that we don't we shouldn't just look at this as things that get taken away. We should look at it as what do we gain? You know, what we gain, we gain space. We lower the pressure on ourselves to to keep making more money. That can mean that we have more freedom in how we, what you know, what kind of employment we choose or how many hours we choose to work. There's a lot to be gained from a lower consuming society. 
I think of all the people my age who have parents who have either died or are having to move on to downsizing to nursing homes or whatever and and all the stuff and how we say to ourselves, we're not going to let that happen to us. And yet it still does. And if anything, if you have a parent that dies and you have all their crap, it really does make you think about consuming less. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and especially because it just feels like all that stuff is suddenly worthless, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I've gone through that experience of losing a parent and and um, yeah, you go through all their things and it's like, well, nobody wants any of it. <laughs> I mean, like you said, maybe your grandparents' stuff because it lasted forever, but you know, in more recent generations, you just inherit a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of stuff that's, that's gonna wear out and you know, you, you've already got all the stuff you need, you don't need any more. It is a really interesting, we, these emerging trends like decluttering uh, and storage, the fact that There's, you know, people yeah, have so storage much stuff units, that they just have crazy. to store, stow it away and, and then pay for it. <laughs> so it's, uh, and yet at the same time, I mean, working on this book has made me really forgiving of the fact that we do these things because there are enormous and powerful forces at work to to pressure us to consume. I mean, there's $600 billion global advertising industry. Media uh, is is always cranking out those, you know, top 10 things you need for summer, that that kind of lifestyle journalism. There's the imagery of film. There's the, the social pressures of social media. Uh, and as we saw in the pandemic, if we slow down, governments will even just cut checks to get <laughs> us back to spending. Well, and that's the thing, I mean, that that is cited, that the fact that we are so afraid that the economy is going to collapse if spending slows. And so that's why I'm just wondering, it seems like we're encouraged to do that. And I don't know how that's going to change. Yeah. And I mean, this is kind of why I looked at it as a thought experiment was I wanted to see, well, I mean, is there anything, is there any other option if we slow down consumption than just economic collapse? And there is, it's just that we do have to take that question seriously. I mean, if we if we do stop consuming tomorrow, all of us uh, to some significant degree, it would have immediate and very serious economic consequences. And you know, the first part of my book plays out like a disaster movie in that way yeah. because you're you know you're watching the world fall apart because we stop shopping. But we don't have to do it that way. We can you know we can make more gradual changes. We can make decisions around how much growth we we we, you know, we can make decisions to to slow growth rates we can share we can move towards things like work sharing we can move towards things like universal basic income which would allow some people to step entirely out of the workforce if they chose to you know live at a at a simpler material level there's a lot of different things we can do to create a society that consumes less but doesn't simply fall into collapse what was it that made you want to write this book? Well, I mean, really, it was the, it, I mean, it was two things. At a personal level, I found myself paralyzed in terms of what to buy because I just, you know, I, I, I'm an environmental writer for the most part. And so I'm very aware of the consequences of everything I spend money on. And I was starting to feel like, well, you know, can, can I buy anything? Can I have any stuff like <laughs> how do I make those decisions at a personal level? That was that was part of it. But that, at a, at the at the level of my work as an environmental journalist, I was just really realizing that it hardly mattered what topic I was writing about. The root cause of it was often 
the scale of consumption that we are that we are living with today. Well, I hope a lot of people will read this because it certainly made me think. And as as uh, one of the descriptions of your book says, the day the world stops shopping will embolden you to envision another way. And and that certainly was the case when I was reading this and have to f- to finish it yet because it's a great book. We have been talking with J. B. McKinnon a Canadian environmental author, and just a great book. And I hope people will stop shopping and consider the consumer dilemma that we're in. What's the website people can find more information about you and your works? Uh, well, they can find the book on um, any of the usual any of the usual places, local bookstores and, and book websites. And my personal website is jbmckinnon.com, McKinnon, M-A-C-K-I-N-N-O-N. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for this, and thank you for this thought-provoking book. As you mentioned, it's a thought experiment in a way, and I think it will get people thinking, and I hope that we'll get them talking and making changes. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where you are part owner. Member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by Lee Pomeroy. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.